Hello, and welcome to another great message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Thanks for joining us today. For notes and video related to this message, please visit www.parkviewchurch.org. Good morning. Welcome to Parkview. I'm Doug, one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you. Great to be with you guys live streaming with us too. So I'm very grateful for this church and grateful for the ways you've been coming together, praying for the things we're walking through in this season as a church, the, the encouragement and support you guys have been giving me. Um, last week even, hearing from three brand new families saying, you know, I, I'm saying, are you going to still stick with us through all this? And they're right here with us, just like, we love how you guys are leading. We love how you guys are going humble and compassionate with this. So I just want to thank the leaders standing around me and just thank you as a church and just excited to see what God is going to keep doing as we just follow him humbly uh, through these days. So kind of in response to some of the things we're hearing uh, as a church too from you guys, just want you to know on the 21st of May, so it's like in two weeks, um, we're going to have a couple different forums. One we've been hearing from some parents and um, about just how can we uh, prepare our families, how can we protect our families from different uh, challenges we face out there, particularly in the realm of sexual abuse. And so there's a counselor from Keys to Living named Sarah who's going to come and kind of lead a workshop. Uh, so to, I think, just watch for the announcements. I think it's 11 o'clock hour on the 21st. And then kind of at the same time, um, like I mentioned last week, there's a lot of emotions kind of that we can walk through at a time like this, like anger or shame, um, confusion, those kind of things. We're also going to do a forum that Sunday during the 11 o'clock hour, just walking through how do you apply biblical truth, how do you apply the gospel to some of the things we might be feeling right now, the hurt we might be feeling, those kind of things. I think it'll be really helpful. And so Pastor John McHale is going to help lead that. There'll be some others there as well. But I think it'll be a good picture of what we try to do for each other in our community groups too, how we take challenges that we're facing in our lives and apply the gospel to those um, so that we can be set free uh, from our sins or from our fears and keep moving forward. So watch for those. Again, um, Sunday, May 21st, that'll be in two weeks. And just as a staff, we just want to love you. We want to walk through this as a church. And so those are two things we'd like to do. So in fact, I'm tag teaming this sermon with John. John, why don't you come on up? So um, we are, I'm going to take part one, and then the best parts will come after that. <laughs> John will take part two. So John is our pastor of community groups here. And his wife, Mary, is sitting in the front row. When I saw Mary this morning, I said, it's good to see you. And there was a deep meaning behind that because I don't know if you heard on Monday, the plane that was flying from O'Hare to Cedar Rapids, that the cabin filled with smoke and they had to make an emergency landing. Mary and their daughter, Sawyer, were on that plane. So I got a text like Monday morning from John said something like, Mary and Sawyer on a plane, it's on fire. Like something like that. And so we're laughing now because praise God they're here and safe. But um, Wow. Yeah, so... Yeah, it was, a, it was a scary time in our house. Um, and Mary, actually, the night before the flight, woke up super anxious about just flying with a two-year-old in general. Um, and then this happened, and just praising God that he shielded her from a lot of uh, just the anxiety and the, the craziness that comes from yeah. having a near-death experience. Um, and I love that they're home, um, but we're grateful. My mom was 20 minutes away. She got to go pick them up and bring them home. And we had them home same day, so. Yeah. 
But like it was hot, like the seat behind you or something, because you were right next to the luggage that was. Yeah, she was in the the back seat, and she's telling me this story, like just another story, and I'm like wetting my pants, kind of. (laughs) She's like, "Yeah, my seat was getting hot because the fire was right behind me," and I'm just like, "Oh my!" And the stewardess was saying, "It's a mist." Yeah, it's just mist. It's just mist. (laughs) And I think Mary and another person are like, "No, it's smoke. We can (laughs) smell it." Yeah. So. Yeah, people were saying goodbye on their phones, making little videos. And yeah, was, yeah, and yeah. Sawyer's just eating her goldfish, like <laughs> nothing's going on, so. So let me just pray for, just praising God that Mary and Sawyer are with us, and just pray for our sermon here too, so. Uh, Father, thank you that you are our rock and refuge, and even we're laughing about this story, but that could have gone another direction, and just thank you that you heard prayers, that you cared for Mary and Sawyer, that plane landed and everybody got out safe, so we praise you for that. We praise you for the peace that has come even after that, that Mary's been walking in. And um, thank you for your care for us and your love for us. And the same as the church, God, you care for us, you love us, you're walking through hard times with us too. May we just sense your peace. May we grow uh, through these days to be more and more like you, Jesus. So now when John and I open your word, Father, may you speak through us clearly and powerfully. May it not be all Doug's talking, all John's talking, but Maybe you, Lord, speaking to your people through your word, help us get out of the way and just help us point people to you. So we ask you to do this in your great name we pray. Amen. All right. Thanks, John. See you in a little bit. All right. So we're going to start this series on the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are really eight short statements that Jesus used at the start of the Sermon on the Mount. And I think just to get them before us, I'm going to have us all read them together. So if you could stand up, sorry, you just got comfortable, stand up, and um, we're going to read these together. Let me read Matthew 5, 1 and 2 to kind of set them up, and then I'll bring you in to read with me, okay? So it says, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, now let's read together, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Great job. You can grab a seat. So the Sermon on the Mount is a part of the Bible that sometimes people have a really hard time knowing what you do with them. Even those statements we just read, like what do we do with those? Some people, and this isn't right, but some people will say the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, are some standards that you have to hit. You better live that way or else you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven or else you cannot be a follower of Jesus. And let's just say right up front, that's not true. There's nowhere in the Bible where you are just called to be perfect and live that high of a standard of life on your own doing, okay? So there's some people that will talk about this Sermon on the Mount and and put it completely in the future tense. Like, well, when Jesus literally comes and is literally reigning, this is what it will look like. And so I think that cheats us from the life that Jesus wants us to be able to live right now. I think the, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, our life that we can begin to enjoy right now. And so there's a lot of confusion in them, but I I really think that what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes and in uh, the Sermon on the Mount is he's presenting to us 
a life that he is offering us. It's a life that through him and as we follow him, that he can begin to produce in our lives. In fact, I love there's, a, there's an author named E. Stanley Jones that he makes the premise that it's really, we are really wired uh, to live in the principles and the standards of the Sermon on the Mount, that we are created in the image of God and that people who are godly live in this way. And so there's actually a yearning in our hearts to live this way, but yet we are also um, fallen. We have all sinned. We've all offended God and done our thing and not his. And so right now, because of the fall, we're not able to live this kind of life. But that's the whole reason, like that um, introduction to the book of Matthew said, that's the whole reason Jesus came to earth. In fact, if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 4, the first thing Jesus does is after he spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, his first public ministry, his very first sermon that's recorded has this message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So that's his first message. And he's, in, he's encouraging us, he's inviting us to turn from living the way that we have been living, living in rebellion to God, doing our thing and not his, hurting the people around us instead of serving. So repent, turn from that, because the kingdom of God is at hand. And so what Jesus is referring to there is that the kingdom's at hand because the king is at hand, that Jesus is now here. And so he's calling us to stop living the way we have been and to come start following him and live the life that he's going to give us the ability to live. So when you jump down to Matthew 4.23, it says that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And so I've heard one author describe Jesus' early ministry days as kind of like a show and tell, that he's showing them the power that he has, uh, the power of the king who has come to rescue a world that's in the bondage of sin, that, that is also scarred then by disease and sickness and demon possession. He's coming to show that he has power over that. But he's also coming to tell us like about the life that we can live through him. And so you see in the early phases of his ministry that show and tell the kingdom is at hand because the king is at hand. This is a whole new way that he is calling us to live. And so the, the Beatitudes are really a summary of the life that Jesus is inviting us to live through his power as we repent and as we follow him, okay? So you might ask, okay, well then, why do we need to focus on just trying to live the Beatitudes? Like, couldn't we just say, well, we'll just wait till we get to heaven, and then Jesus, it'll be, it'll be good up there. It'll be attitude city all over the place, right? Why don't we just wait? I think there's some, there's some things that he wants us to enjoy now as we live this new life in the kingdom. Did you notice that at the beginning of every beatitude was the word blessed? It's a very rich word. It was the Greek word makaros. Um, and I'm just going to have to use several words to describe it. It means to be fulfilled. It means deep contentment. It means a happiness in spite of any circumstance you face. It means to be fully approved by God and fully enjoying the life that God has you to live. It just, it hits you deep in your soul. It's a, it's a complete joy. It's a completely fulfilling way to live. That's what blessed means. And so one reason we want to run after the Beatitudes is like, I would love to live a blessed life. Okay, there's one. The second one is you noticed in every Beatitude if you were to write them out, on the right side, there's a list of some amazing promises. Like, blessed are, and then you fill in the blank, for they, and then just listen to the things that are promised us. Theirs is the kingdom of God. They will inherit the earth. They will be comforted. They will be filled. 
They will be shown mercy. They will see God. They will be called children of God. And those are great things. I don't know whatever our number one pursuit coming in here was this morning. Those descriptors are outstanding. Like those are things that I would want to experience in this life. So we run after the Beatitudes because of the rewards. But here's the third piece I don't want you to miss. I think we run after the Beatitudes because when we start living the kind of life that Jesus is calling us into, we will have the maximum influence on the people we love, the people around us. We don't want to lose this, but towards the end of the section on the Beatitudes, Jesus said this. Um, he said, let your good works shine before men so they can see your good works and bring glory to your Father who is in heaven. Like one thing that will happen is that the more and more Jesus transforms your life and helps you live out the Beatitudes, to live out the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, you put his life on display. And that life on display is incredibly beautiful and attractive to the people around you. Even though they may not know Jesus, again, I think it's calling from their, crea from their creator, from being created in the image of God. There's a longing to live a, a better life than we're living in this broken world, than we're living in our sin. And so as you begin to, to exhibit and put on display in your life the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount, you become a beautiful picture of what Jesus can do in a, in a broken life. And people will be drawn to you so that God gets glory, not us. So, so don't lose that part in it. Why do I want to study the Beatitudes? Why do I want to become more like Christ? You will have an amazing influence on the people around you. So the first Beatitude we're going to look at and unpack this morning is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. There were different words that could have been used for poor. This one would have been the most extreme, uh, the most severe. Um, think bankruptcy, think total destitution. And so the one who has the kingdom of God is the one who is completely spiritually broken, uh, bankrupt, destitute. That's, that's, that's the first quality Jesus mentions. And I think this quality is the gateway into the other qualities. This is where you start. You start with a broken spirit, with being poor in spirit. And so let's get our heads around that for a couple minutes. What's it mean to be poor in spirit? Uh, let, me, let me expose it maybe in this way. Maybe you've heard this question before. But if somebody were to come up to you and say, uh, if you were to die today and you were, stand, you were to stand before God and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? It's usually that question that exposes um, our spiritual richness. Okay, that's where we'll start flaunting our credentials. Why should I be good enough to get into heaven? Okay, God, let me just think of some. I go to church. I give money to poor people. I don't swear that much. I'm way better than my neighbor. I'm way better than Doug Schillinger. I know that. Like, so I just, like, you just think of, like, all the, you know, we might compare, compete, all that kind of stuff, and just kind of list our credentials. Why should God let me into heaven? And that's, that's kind of the opposite of what Jesus is getting at here. It's not coming before God with all that you have done to qualify. It's coming to God and just admitting your brokenness and your, your bankruptcy. I, th I think the, the appropriate answer to that question is like, God, I have done nothing. I've done nothing to merit walking into heaven. I'm just pleading in the fact that you are a merciful God. And, then if, and you'll hear from John later, but when we know the gospel, that Jesus came to die for sinners, that's our only hope. Like that's, and so this morning, if you feel like you are the worst sinner in this room, that there's no way somebody like you belongs in church, uh, you qualify. Like you are just, just admitting your spiritual poverty. 
and, and bankruptcy is the first step. Jesus, maybe a surprise newsflash to you, says that you're actually blessed and yours is the kingdom of heaven. If you identify and see and clearly know that you're spiritually bankrupt. Jesus told a story to help us get this. I love how he illustrates this point. It's in Luke 18, in verse 9. I'll start reading it here. It says, to those who were confident um, of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. Let's pause. If you were in Jesus' day and you heard this story to that point, you would immediately think who qualifies for heaven would be the Pharisee. When you hear Pharisee, think pastor, think spiritual leader, think, you know, the guy that has all the spiritual credentials would be the Pharisee. And then when you hear tax collector, who, eh, think of the worst person you can think of, the worst category of people, cyclone fan, or, you know, just no, 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 far, far worse than that. Like, so whoever for you is in that category, that's what a tax collector was in, in Jesus' day. They used to have some, some religious laws. One was, if, if a thief were to just step into your home and then just sneak out, you would have to cleanse the part of your house where that thief stepped, okay? But if a tax collector just stepped inside of your house and then went out, you'd have to clean your whole house. Like, your whole house was unclean because of just one step into it. They were the bottom of the spiritual totem pole. And so Jesus is going to flip the script. You've got a Pharisee praying, and you've got a tax collector praying. And the Pharisee stood by himself. He separated himself from everybody else, and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even, can't you just sense the scorn here, even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance, and he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. That means declared righteous by God. God, who do you think is righteous? God would say the tax collector. And Jesus said, I tell you that, I'm sorry, that those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. When Jesus told that story, there would just been an awe and a hush. Like, are you kidding me? But that's exactly what Jesus is talking about, that those that are poor in spirit are the ones who possess the kingdom of heaven. So it's not our achievements. It's not what we've done. In fact, when God looks at our achievements, not, not to offend us, but he's just being honest, Isaiah 64, 6 says that even our most righteous deeds are like filthy rags before a holy God. Like God's not impressed. Sometimes we try to impress each other with our spiritual deeds that we've done, or we'll use our spiritual deeds to puff ourselves up so that we can criticize everybody else, just like the Pharisee did in that story. But Jesus says, no, this, the way to step into my kingdom is to recognize your spiritual poverty. There's a, a hymn called The Rock of Ages. There's a verse in that that says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. That's the posture. That's the way into uh, the kingdom of God because it's at that point that Jesus can teach you, that Jesus can lead you. Uh, Jesus said, it's not the healthy that need a physician, it's the sick. Jesus said, I didn't come to call righteous people. 
I didn't come to call people who already think they're doing good enough things to be accepted by God. But he said, I came to call sinners to repentance. I had a man in my office a couple weeks ago that he told me had, if ever, very few times had ever been to church, but he was at the absolute bottom of his life. And he asked me to share the gospel with him. And when I talked about our sin and our rebellion, he just totally understood that. He said, that is me. That's, that's me to a T. But when I went to the other side about God is gracious with sinners, that Jesus died for sinners, that Jesus offers you new life, he said, I know nothing about that. I have thought, I just know, I just am convinced that I am a sinful, a, a sinful man. I am so far from God. Can I, can, I still, can I still take this gift of salvation? It's like, absolutely. I, it's been a long time before I've been a man that has been with a man that has been so, so spiritually broken as this man. And isn't that a cool promise to say to him that, that you, Jesus died for you and he'll give, there's time to learn about his love and his forgiveness in the gospel. But he was at that key point of just knowing he was desperate and he needed Jesus. So, and so um, my encouragement to us is, is really understand what does it mean to be, to be broken in spirit. And it's not focusing on how good we are or what we've done, but it's focusing on our total need before a holy God. So John's going to come up now and walk us through uh, the resources available to those that are poor in spirit. So... Let's go, John. Well, hey, church family. Let's keep going. Um, Doug has done a great job of laying out what it looks like uh, to be poor in spirit. And it's my job and my task to talk about the resource of the poor in spirit and then talk a little bit about the result of the poor in spirit. Um, it's interesting if you stand back and look at this verse kind of on the surface. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we think, really? The spiritual beggars are the ones who run the kingdom? Come on, Jesus. It should be the spiritual champions that run the kingdom. But no, Jesus tells us that it is the spiritual beggars, the poor in spirit, who run the king kingdom. The spiritual beggars become kings and queens in the kingdom. That's, that's what the gospel does in our lives. And it represents this upside-down ethic in the kingdom. When Jesus comes on the scene, everyone thinks that he's going to come and take the kingdom by force and set up his earthly kingdom and take political power. But what does he do? He comes down and, and kneels on the ground and washes people's feet and meets with the sick and the poor. In this same passage, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Later on in this same book, Jesus says, Whoever humbles himself like a child is great in the kingdom. And we see this upside-down ethic of God's kingdom. And we see what the prophets have told us from old. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They're upside down. Now, embedded in this verse, this beatitude, uh, there is great strength. And it's not, it's not because of the people are poor in spirit in and of themselves. But it's what, what the poor in spirit receive 
in Jesus. That's what makes them strong. That's what makes them um, possessors of the kingdom of God. Uh, and so let's, let's draw out uh, how this happens. In the gospel, Jesus Christ takes on the role of lead beggar. He becomes a beggar himself to lead us into the kingdom and make us kings and queens in the kingdom. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And so Jesus, uh, this, is, this is our message. Jesus leaves his throne in heaven and comes down to earth. And he meets us in our spiritual bankruptcy and poverty. And he heals us of our brokenness. I like to think of it this way. The king, the king becomes a beggar in order to bring beggars into the kingdom. And so this is the resource of the poor in spirit. It is the grace and mercy of God in Jesus. But here's the trick. Uh, here's the thing. It's a resource uh, that has to be received. My wife and I, we, uh, we moved about two years ago from Dallas and lived on the outskirts of the city. And so uh, we came in contact with a lot of uh, people who needed money or were homeless or um, hungry. And I felt called as a Christian to engage that population. And so I, I, was, I was thinking, I'm going to give them my time, I'm going to give them a relationship, and I'm going to try and meet a need. And I made this rule, I'm not going to give anyone any cash, because um, I didn't know what that could be used for. And it was interesting as I engaged this population, because oftentimes, in, oftentimes you'll, someone will say, hey, I'm hungry, can I have some money? And say, hey, like, I can't. I can't give you money. It's just part of my convictions. But I'd love to buy you a piece of pizza. I'd love to buy you a cliff bar and a bottle of water. I'd love to meet that need that you've just put before me. And I think it's, it's, it's an American uh, beggar that um, almost receives it reluctantly. Okay, like pizza, I guess. I'll take that. Or sometimes people would just say, no, I don't want that. I don't like cliff bars. No thanks. And there's, there's this weird thing, right? You're kind of like, wait, I, th I thought you were hungry. And I'll never forget um, when I was traveling in Europe, uh, in the city of Prague, beautiful city, if you ever have a chance to get there. I was walking down the St. Peter's Bridge, and I saw a beggar. Uh, and this beggar was very different than the ones that I had engaged in Dallas, because this beggar was on his knees on the bridge with his face to the ground and his hands up like this. He was in a position of receiving. And this is the position of the poor in spirit. We are in a position where all we can do is receive. But, you guys might know this, receiving is, is tough work, right? Um, it goes against our American sensibilities. I was a waiter for too long, like eight years. Uh, good money. I, I enjoyed the people I worked with. Uh, 
but a waiter always gets caught up in this huge argument at tables on who's going to pay for the bill, right? And I just would tear my hair out because I, I wanted to look at people and be like, dude, he wants to buy you lunch. Let him buy you lunch. But, but we struggle with receiving because it makes us dependent upon other people. If I am in a position of receiving, that, that means that I am dependent upon that person. And so here's what I want to do is I want to I talk about two obstacles preventing us from receiving God's grace. The first obstacle is religion, and the second obstacle is shame. And so we'll take religion first. This is demonstrated by that Pharisee, by the person who looks down upon the beggar. Um, and uh, it thrives on comparison to others, to maybe less spiritual people. Uh, in religion, spiritual identity is based upon spiritual achievements. And so it, 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 it just by nature, you have to look down upon those who aren't further along in the latter. And it's important that when we talk about this, and maybe I've even misled us a little bit, it's important when we talk about this to recognize that we're all susceptible to this Pharisee-like mentality. It's so easy to downshift into religion. And I share these obstacles um, from my, my own personal story because these things have both gotten in my way to receive God's grace. But we have to acknowledge that this, this is our default mode. That's what Martin Luther says. He says the default mode of the human heart is to go back to religion. Because religion, I can control religion. I don't, I'm not dependent upon anyone else in religion. Later in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, he warns us against it. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. It's heavy stuff. The religious person uses God to get things. So they read their Bible to feel better about themselves. They um, stand up and preach a sermon to feel better about themselves. A gospel-centered person is different. Because a gospel-centered person uh, obeys and does spiritual disciplines to enjoy God's presence. And the obedience is an overflow of receiving and believing and clinging to God's grace. Let me illustrate. Charles Spurgeon, uh, this old preacher, um, he has a good story to illustrate this idea. He says, once upon a time there was a gardener who grew this enormous carrot. Don't know why it's a carrot, but let's just go. Um, and he brought the carrot to his king, and he says, Majesty, this is the greatest carrot I've ever, I'm ever going to grow, and I want you to have it as a token of my esteem and affection. And the king discerns the man's heart, and he saw that it was a gracious act, and he said, Thank you. And I want you to know something. I, I own the land right next to your garden, and you seem like a citizen that is going to do good for the rest of the kingdom. So I want, I want you to have my garden so that you can till all the garden and produce more and more fruit. 
And so the gardener went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at court, and he said, man, if you can get an acre for a carrot, So the next day, the nobleman came and brought a horse, a beautiful horse. And he said, Majesty, I raise horses. This is the finest horse that I've ever produced, and I want you to have it as a token of my esteem and affection. But the king discerned the man's heart, and he saw what had happened. And he said, thank you, and just left. (laughs) And the nobleman is confused and perplexed. And the king saw that and said, hey, okay, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot. You were giving yourself the horse. Spurgeon goes on to say, are you feeding the hungry or are you feeding yourself? Are you clothing the naked or are you clothing yourself? Are you giving to the poor or are you giving to yourself? Are you praying to God or are you praying to yourself? It all depends on whether you believe the gospel. And so you cannot be in a position to receive God's grace if you are trying to manipulate the gospel for personal gain, for feel-better kind of spirituality. The second obstacle is shame. Uh, And shame, if we use the example, shame would be the beggar with their face in the ground, but their hands are tied behind their back. They're not in a position to receive because they, they feel so terrible about who they are and what they've done. Religion wants everyone to look at them. Shame wants no one to see them. Shame hides. Shame isolates. They feel deep down that they're unworthy of God's love. They're unlovable. They're worthless. This person says, you don't know what I've done. You have no clue the terrible things I've done. And it only takes a few minutes to look at all the stories in the Bible and to see great men of our faith and all the terrible things they've done. We lift these guys up like they're invincible. But Abraham, a great great man in the kingdom, Abraham bailed on his wife when she needed him the most. And he left her to fend for herself in a foreign land. David, David, a man after God's own heart, what did he do? He stole someone's wife and had a baby with her. And then he felt so ashamed about it, he covered up what he had done by killing her husband. The reason these men are great in the kingdom is not because of all the spiritual achievements that they've done, because they've done terrible things too. The reason these men are great in the kingdom is because they learned what it looks like to receive from God, to be poor in spirit and recognize the terrible things they had done, but they had their hands out every single day, receiving God's grace, marinating in God's grace, and then out of that grace is where they did these great and awesome things for God. And they did some great things. I can remember, uh, some of you may know my story, but Uh, have a really broken past and got caught up into drugs, alcohol um, for a long time in college and a little bit um, outside of that time. And Jesus broke through and saved me from that life. 
And I can remember I was about a year following Jesus, and I went back to college to visit some of my old friends. And I brought my brother along with me, uh, who was uh, following Jesus, and um, went out, watched a football game or something, and I, I stumbled and I fell back into some old habits. And I'll never forget how ashamed I felt after that night that my brother saw me stumble like that. And in the car ride home, I remember I kept apologizing. Ah, I'm so sorry. I'm so, oh man, I cannot believe I did that. And at a certain point, my brother got so frustrated. He's like, dude, I forgive you. Like, will you stop apologizing? <laughs> But the reality is, I needed someone else's forgiveness. For the first few years that I was a Christian, I had the hardest time receiving God's forgiveness. And I would find myself taking a sin and repeatedly confessing and confessing and confessing. And what I was doing was not receiving God's forgiveness and grace I wasn't enjoying it. I wasn't cherishing it because I thought that it was my justification that was going to save me. No, no. It's all been paid for in the cross of Jesus. And so what happens is out of that, there are these results, these beautiful fruits that come. And I want to talk about personal and then missional. So personal implications of receiving God's grace and enjoying it. Um, the gospel draws us out of both of these obstacles. Remember? Religion and shame. The gospel brings us out of both. Jesus rescues us from religion by setting us free from the pressure to perform. So it's not that we never strive to obey and practice spiritual disciplines, but it, but it is to say that the love of God is not dependent upon those things. You don't need to, to read your Bible more for God to love you more. No, the love of God is for you. The love of God is pursuing after you. And so it calls us out of this pressure to perform. Jesus rescues us from shame by taking on our shame. That's what we see Jesus doing in the gospel. Is he steps down and takes on the role of lead beggar. And he meets with us in our shame. And he takes it upon himself. And out of that offers forgiveness and healing. And he establishes our worth and value. Person in shame thinks they're worthless. And Jesus says, no, you are worth something. First, because you are a creation of God. You are made in the image of God. And that means you're worth something. But even more, if you are a person receiving God's grace, watch out. Because you have become a son or a daughter of God the Father. You've become kings and queens in the kingdom. And that's, that is such great news. For the person who is struggling with thinking that they are terrible, that they are worthless, Jesus comes in and dignifies, forgives, and heals us. And out of that, there is this beautiful peace that begins to reverberate through your life. There is an explosive joy, right? You ever met someone who's first tasted the forgiveness of God? They won't shut up about it. 
It's like, dude, chill out, man. We hear about this every Sunday. And it produces a humility in us. Because if we are a people that are on our knees continually in a position of receiving as the poor in spirit, what happens is we're not better than anyone. Because we're here and we stay here. And every day we receive. Lamentation says uh, new mercies every morning. Every time you get up, you're going to exhaust them, don't worry. But they're there for you fresh every morning. The missional peace, when we start living as spiritual beggars who receive God's grace, this beautiful thing happens. It's the kingdom of heaven. It comes down to earth. And this is exactly the language that's being used here. It's a present thing. The kingdom comes down now. And it, it displays this beautiful redemption for all who would come in contact with Christians. And this is what Jesus means when he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. The light that pushes back darkness. That pushes back oppression and injustice. I'm reading a book uh, for community groups. We're trying to build up some of the mission stuff. And I love uh, this book's definition of mission. There's a guy named Michael Frost. Um, and he says this, mission is alerting people to the universal reign of God through Christ. And this happens when we start becoming this beatitude kind of people. It's beautiful. When we learn what it looks like to become poor in spirit, but to be people who are receiving God's grace. And that is going to, uh, to push out against religion. That is going to push out against shame. So that, that is our word this morning from the Lord. I pray that you bless it. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Parkview Church. We pray that you are blessed by God's word. For additional teaching, resources, podcasts, as well as information on who we are and our upcoming events, please visit our website at www.parkviewchurch.org.